everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Uh, I mean, very obviously a, a very happy week for many of us, uh, especially John and I. Um, it is no <laughs> surprise that we're having a, a really good week because on Friday, the, the New York Mets were sold, officially. Officially sold. Officially. Ended. Just the biggest news in the world this week. The Wilpons are gone. This this horrible thing that's been you know plaguing our country for years now are are, are just they're they're in the past. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, the 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 old people or person that uh, that we didn't like is now no longer there. Jeff, Jeff uh, Wilpon. <laughs> and, and now and now we suddenly see a much brighter future. It's just uh, just a real weight off the shoulders. I think for the country as a whole, we all know. We all care deeply about the New York Mets, and um, it's just a brighter day moving forward. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get back to the Mets in a second. Obviously, Joe Biden won the presidency. That too. Um, yeah, that, that happened. That too. Uh, we're only mentioning it because he was a Syracuse grad, um, and obviously we'll be uh, tastefully putting Syracuse-related jokes around Joe Biden on the blog for, for years to come. But back to the Mets, since this is a bi-week episode, why not start a little off-topic? Um <laughs> Dan, are you ready for the big market Mets? Because I, I, I don't know if I've like mentally prepared myself for it. And I also need to like couch it that big market Mets could also just become the Knicks. And I need to like make sure that I don't get ahead of myself. Um, I, I feel pretty good about it. I mean, we've, we've, we've had the big market Mets before. It's been, like, like briefly. Yes. I mean, there were like brief moments of it. Um before the Bernie Madoff situation, um, when our when our previous ownership had money, um, now our current ownership has a lot more money than they than, ever, than everybody than everybody. I would argue too much money, but that's another yeah. conversation <laughs> for another podcast. Um, as far as I mean, I guess like if we have to choose our, our billionaire owner, I'll take the one with fourteen billion dollars, who's apparently like wife and uh uh father-in-law are like diehard lifelong apparently his father-in-law goes to every Mets game like that's crazy he's like yeah he's like a diehard Mets fan and then I saw he's nine billion dollars richer than the next richest owner (laughs) it's it's like (laughs) so I I think honestly like what what makes me feel pretty good about it and like obviously Sandy Alderson was here before under the last administration um and, you know, that's a World Series, uh, despite, like, you know, not having the greatest financial uh, capabilities. Uh, I think Sandy Alderson kind of signals that we're going to use money, but smartly. Like, we're not going to just be, like, stupid, um, like a James Dolan type thing. Like, James Dolan has plenty of money, and obviously the salary cap makes that a different ballgame. But, like, just because you have a lot of resources doesn't mean you're going to use them uh, effectively. Um, I think that Steve Cohen has everything I've seen so far – it seems like he's not going to just throw it around, but he'll spend it if it's going to be a good use. So um, I think that's a good, a good uh, kind of middle point. And honestly, like that's why the Dodgers have been spending a ton of money, but it's worked out because they, they, you know, they made, they finally won their first world series, but they were in contention every year. Um, and like, it wasn't like they had a lot of bomb, like bombs in terms of the guys that they went and got, they got effective players. So um, if, if that's like the new model, it's like the, it's, it's like not the, obviously not the money ball model, but it's like the, um, don't mess up when you spend millions of dollars on a player model. I, I'm all for it. Well, I think too, realistically, I know we've kind of like mentioned this here and there in the podcast, and this is not a baseball show, I swear. Um, the Dodgers did something smart where it looked like they were going all in on big contracts. But when you look up and down the roster, there's a handful of like 
bigger contracts. And then everybody else is really like just home, just really well, like developed homegrown talent. And, and that's and, like a, that's a nice place to be because like baseball, I think more than anyone, any other sport, like guys still, I mean, fans still love their homegrown talent, especially the Mets, Mets fans. Like, obviously you have like a good amount of homegrown talent on the roster already. And if you can supplement that with like a couple big money guys, if you want to go make a Francisco Lindor trade, like which has been rumored a ton this week uh, amid everything else. Um, I think that's like a, a good middle ground where like you, you bring the guys up that you have in the system and then you supplant them with, uh, you know, fill the gaps that you don't have in the system with, with big money players. And, and I mean, that's worked out for LA. There's no reason why they can't do it here. And also yeah. some drive Yankee fans nuts, which is going to be great. Yeah, he's going to drive Yankee fans, which is great. I mean, Boston, I think, is kind of falling back to the pack a little bit on spending. But then, like, I, I think with the Mets, there's there's a slightly different approach than the Dodgers. I feel like what the Dodgers did at the beginning was they understood that they had some young players, guys like Kershaw, um, like, and figured out, let's bring along this young core. Let's acquire a ton of, you know, upper-level prospects while taking on these quote-unquote bad contracts for guys we still think can play. You know, your Andre Ethiers, your Adrian Gonzalez, guys like that. Meanwhile, like, I think the Mets are in a little bit of a different situation. I don't necessarily think, like, the Dodgers were competing to some extent, but, like, the fan base just needed to be satiated with quality baseball. I think the Mets are in a situation where they're going to be taking on contracts that aren't going to give them all these kickers for of, like, you know, really good double A AA and triple A prospects are going to be taking on contracts that they might have to give up prospects to acquire. Um, and I think like that's where it's a little bit different. Like some of the new ownership group with the Dodgers included like magic Johnson, who already had so much capital with within LA that everyone was willing to like trust that he was going to, that it was going to be in good hands because he was involved and others were involved um, who were willing to make big changes. I think, yeah, like you kind of mentioned the fact that the Mets cleaned house right away and seemed to be embracing, um, you know, advanced statistics, uh, something that they'd really like barely touched on um, in previous years, which is stunning given the, its success um, at the major league level. I, I think you're going to see a hybrid approach. I think it's not necessarily going to look exactly like what the Dodgers did. Um, and the Dodgers, you know, like basically like doubled the luxury tax bill in the first like couple of years. And now you look and, and, and they're not even the, the highest paid team, but are easily like year in and year out the, the, best put together team. And I think the Mets, if they view this in, in the short and long term, probably trend more towards something like that where they they might spend a little bit this year, but I don't think we're going to hit that like stratospheric um, you know, spending bill that that the Dodgers didn't that the Yankees regularly do either. Yeah. There's also signals that the Yankees are gonna like maybe be a little more uh tightly strapped this year, which is is funny ah. considering yeah, it'd be it'd be quite the quite the interesting uh duo there. Although obviously, like who knows what's going to happen given the the circumstances around sports uh, with COVID and whatnot. Um, but I mean, I, I don't think Cohen's coming here to like. I don't think he's going to like open up the pocket to do stupid stuff. But I I do expect if there if there's money to be spent, he'll do it this year. If not next year, so um, yeah, no, it's uh, legitimately joke jokes aside from the start, like a, a giant relief. We've been talking about it. I mean, Cohen got involved like early early this year at first, and like the first sale fell through. So it's it's been like it feels like a full year process to get to this point, but um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a bright day as a Mets fan. Uh, it was legitimately like a really nice weekend on a lot of fronts. It was also <laughs> gorgeous here. Uh, I know it rained in LA, which is probably a good thing. Um, but yeah, it just seemed like all things came together here. Uh, obviously some more, legitimately more important than others, um, but 
it's good to, to be looking up here to end uh, just a pretty hellacious year otherwise. I would agree. Um, speaking of hellacious, uh, Syracuse football, first half here, we're definitely <laughs> going to talk. <laughs> we are going to talk about Syracuse football uh, a bit. Um, we're going to discuss the Boston College game first. Uh, Dan, Syracuse lost 16-13. I think the fan base was pretty divided. I felt like some of the fan base said that, like, that score wasn't indicative of how bad of a game it was, and then others felt like it was indicative of a team that at least was starting to figure something out. I mean, we'll see whether or not that's true, you know, after the bye week um, coming up, whether this is just a, a temporary blip, you know, without some game film on, on a young quarterback, or if this was just, the, you know, the beginning of us at least playing better uh, through the end of the season, at least saving some face um, for Babers in what's been a rough year. I mean, w- what side of the line do you fall on? Um, I was pretty encouraged overall. Um, I was dealing with some other, you know, feel, well, not like didn't have my total attention paid to this game. I had to cover some other ones for work, but, um, and, and pay attention to like the whole litany of games going on. Cause you know, usually uh, I have the 12 o'clock hour free and this was, I think our, was this our first non noon game? Yeah. So this was our first non 12 or 1230 game. Yeah. So, like, usually I have the, like, basically most of the beginning of a game free. This time I did not. So I was a little bit uh, kind of, you know, juggling between this and some other ones. But um, I I thought Morgan looked pretty good, honestly. And that was obviously going to be the headline for this game no matter what. Um, you know, he didn't blow you away. If you see the stat line from, like, a veteran quarterback, it, you'd be, like, you know, not great. But for his first, like, true uh, major action um, to, to complete, you know, almost two-thirds of his passes, you know, 188 yards, not not great, but, like, you know, not terrible. 6.3 yards in attempt, again, like, pretty average. But for a first start against at least a decent Boston College defense, uh, you'll take it. Had the really nice touchdown throw at the end. Um, you know, the interception wasn't good, but you forgive it, considering it's his first start. Um, I thought BC did a nice job against our running game, unfortunately. Um, Sean Tucker looked pretty good, but everyone else was pretty limited. Um, kind of interested that we only saw Cooper Lutz get two carries after he had such a nice game last week. Um, but yeah, I, I think you, it was kind of a continuation of what we've seen from like the receiving core. Um, Taj back, you know, got back going, led the team with seven catches. Tweely is still uh, emerging and, and obviously seems to have chemistry with uh, Morgan as well as Rex Culpepper, which is nice. Um, but basically, like I, I, from what the game was, I see no reason to not give Morgan the rest of the starts going forward, honestly. Um, I think he was, you know, it wasn't a great game. All things like in, if, if you take away the context of it being a player's first start as a true freshman. Um, but I thought it was, he was about as effective as Rex has been the whole time. So I don't see any real reason to move away from that. Yeah. I mean, it kind of speaks to what you and I were talking about last week. Like, were we confident that Rex was going to be able to give us seven for seven against the, or against Wake's second team last week? And the answer was probably not. And and so seeing Morgan be able to go out and do that um, had us encouraged that maybe he'd get the start. Um, Rex, you know, you never want to see anybody injured, but Rex's apparent injury did clear the way for for Morgan to start. I think early on I was really encouraged. Um, you know, I, realistically, like Morgan did pad that stat line a bit in the, in the first like quarter and a half or so where I felt like we were moving the ball with some tempo. Uh, it seemed like we were doing a great job on finding screens that basically eluded us all year. Uh, I know you mentioned, you know, Anthony Quilly. I think Quilly, the Quilly tunnel screen has become like a, a one we see maybe once or twice a game, but it, it's a really effective play that usually leads to a first down. 
I, I you mentioned Cooper Lutz. The the way Lutz was used as a receiver in the in the on that last drive uh, was pretty encouraging, and I think it's something that you see them go back to the well on a bit. I I think realistically, like Morgan had some shaky moments. I think once you saw him under pressure a little bit more, uh, and and really there was a stark difference between when Dakota Davis was in um, on the line and when he wasn't. But when you did see him under pressure, especially like in the third quarter, um, Morgan did have that like young quarterback tendency to, you know, switch back and forth a few times, kind of run away from pressure leads to big, uh, big losses uh, in sacks. But he, at the same time, he did show, um, what I felt like was more pocket poise than uh, than DeVito or Culpepper had this year. I felt like he was able to step up. I, I felt like he made a couple, uh, you know, smart decisions to to you know tuck the, tuck and run the ball in particular on that fourteen yard. I don't know how it wasn't a touchdown um, with just a few seconds left in the game. Realistically, like he, you know, he he is a freshman and he is someone who I think we're the rest of this year is a wash anyway. I, I think I'm I'm willing to give him more time. Um, I'd really like to see, and Dino Babers pointed this out too, like more tempo, which tempo was awful in, for the for the you know entirety of this game after like that first quarter. And like to see more of the run game. I think we move away from it too quickly, and that goes to play calling. Uh, realistically, like Sterling Gilbert has gotten better on that front, but but I would still say that he's underutilizing um, a lot of weapons on his team. And, and and if they have tempo and and you start using the run game more, that should open more things up. Uh, for Morgan, I felt like BC stopped the run game a little bit early and then they just kind of shied away uh, until like little bits in the second half. But I actually thought that like Tucker started figuring things out um, and, and was picking up some chunk yardage. I felt like Lutz was never really given a shot to pick up yardage. I, I think the play calling still leaves a lot to be desired here, but maybe Morgan can help open that playbook up a little bit more for Gilbert, a guy who, to me, like, I know it sounds irrational that, that, that his job's in danger, but honestly, like of any coach on the staff, I feel like his job and, and the straight and conditioning staff's jobs are, are, are most in the crosshairs right now. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good point. I, I don't doubt what the tempo thing has been frustrating for, I'd say long stretches of the Babers tenure, because, especially because like even early on, we didn't have, great teams we were still able to get the tempo at least like kind of clicking up to where things uh where you wanted things and especially in these games that are close for a while um when the defense is hanging on the defense played great this whole week uh this whole game like I don't get why you don't at least just try to force it like I know you don't want to just have like give away three and outs and and have the game get away from you there but maximize potential though maximize potential and also these games are kind of like learning experiences like we're basically you know, getting in our, our, you know, pre-bowl practice, uh, but in, like, game form here. Um, there isn't a lot else to play for. So, like, why not try to have your young guys play in the uh, in the manner in which, like, you're hoping that they play in the more meaningful games down the road? Like, I I don't know. It just – it's frustrating, A, that, you, like you said, we, we abandoned large parts of our game plan. We abandoned the run very early. Um, you know, Sean Tucker only – Got the ball uh, like 13 total times between uh, run and pass. Um, Lutz only five, which after last week, like you want to see Cooper Lutz at the ball a little bit more than that. But in a, you know, this game was close throughout the whole time. It obviously was ended as a field goal game. I don't get why you like worry so much um, about like the running game being shut down in a three point game uh, that never got away from Syracuse, um, and don't try to like at least kind of work the fundamentals a little bit more. Um, I don't know. It just seems like the way the season is gone, like you just try to work on the fit, work on stuff and, and, 
and make things happen during games rather than just like try to worry about something like letting the games get away from you. Like we're one, in, we're one and seven at this point. Like just, just try to see, you know, work on the things that you want to see. Yeah. That's the thing. Like it, it's not as if like, I know Babers doesn't want to lose and you don't want to play to lose, but at the same time, like there's certain things you might want to try out a bit. I, like I saw a bunch of people were, were pretty pissed off about the fourth down decision um, and, and, you know, not going for it on fourth and two and settling for a field goal. I did find it interesting when I was writing that electoral college article um, for Monday, how many people in the, in the thread after that game uh, against Florida state back in 2017, I believe that were pretty aggravated by the fact that Dino went for it on fourth down and didn't settle for a field goal in a game when they lost by three. Uh, so that was entertaining to me at least. But uh, in, in any case, I, I do think that, yeah, like, this isn't just a like recent games, like post Tommy DeVito injury um, offensive problem. Like this is a dating back to last year where you've seen zero tempo. uh, You've seen, you know, play calling just kind of grind drives to a halt. You've seen poor decisions. You've seen a lack of a run game, um, you know, more games than not. I, I, it's not that I, I'm, I'm not losing faith in Baver's ability to turn it around, but I'm just wondering, like, at what point are we going to get back to what we were doing? And, and fully understanding that, like, tempo is not this differentiating point anymore. Uh, but I also think that, like, if you're going to run a tempo-style offense slowly and only run 50 plays per game, like, you're pretty much guaranteeing yourself a loss. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, it's just it's frustrating all around. It does seem like Dino's gone away from the aggressiveness that um, I know not for everyone, but like I like I love that he was very aggressive going for it on fourth down earlier in his tenure. And I think like I think the compounding losses like take that away from coaches. And I wish he would just coach the way he was coaching earlier. Honestly, uh, like I I think moving to a more you know conservative style in order to like not let things get away from you. I, I just don't see the point in that this year. Um, I just, I, I want to see the, the team play as close to the team that he, I, he ideally wants to see because like, what are we, you know, what's the difference if we, between us going even like one and nine versus like three and seven, like, is it, it's at this point to me, just, I, I just want to see the closest, the, the, the closest thing to the ideal version. And if it costs you a couple, uh, you know, if games some games get away from you earlier than they would have because of the talent differential, like I, I'll I'll accept that. It's just I don't know. It just at, at times I struggle to see the the vision. Like he, he had to be kind of forced into playing a Ricky, uh, freshman quarterback um, when it was clear that Culpepper was not going to be the guy moving forward. Um, it just seems like he he's... Well, Sean Tucker, all the freshmen in the secondary line. I mean, Garrett Williams, one of the best I'd argue defensive backs in the conference right now. As is yeah, like like all, all these things that like we talked about this a little bit last week. Why why is it that injuries are thrusting the better players in? And like, well, why are why are why are we giving this like sacred cow status 
to certain players if they're not getting it done. And you've seen it time, like you've seen it repeatedly now. There are exceptions, obviously, but you've seen it repeatedly now where players across the board have been able to hold off challengers, um, not by way of like their own play, their own quality of play. And it, it's just odd to me that considering now everybody on the team is a baby's recruit, like there shouldn't be an issue. <laughs> like just put in the best guys because we need to win games. Yeah, I was about to bring the same thing. Like early on, it you kind of see why it makes sense where you're you're more aggressive and you're more apt to play the younger guys because it's your recruit versus Schaefer recruit. I don't like I don't particularly care who recruited the guy. Just play the best person, especially and if it's a younger guy, like you can still sell that. Like, hey, our recruiting is on an uptick. We have a guy like Garrett Williams who people didn't have uh, a ton of like you know people didn't expect him to step in and play the way he has. That's just a, a testament to to how the recruiting has ticked up even through some, you know, iffy seasons here. Um, so, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense to me why you, like, I, I know there's, like, locker room concerns and, like, maybe we don't see everything and, and and taking jobs away from seniors can get tricky in some spots. But I think most of us who have played at any level, even the high school level, you know when, like, the best guy isn't playing. Um, like, if it, it becomes very obvious when the coaches do the, like, leaning towards a veteran guy, even though the younger guy is clearly better. And that doesn't make anyone happy either. So I, I, I think you just need to um, just, just play the best players, play the guys who have the most, uh, the most, you know, the, the, the most significant outlook to the future and, and try to, you know, give fans a sense of where things are headed versus just trying to play to keep things close and steal games uh, at the end. And because, you know, this game shows like we played a, a, a BC team that looks pretty decent. We played mostly young guys out of necessity and end up being a three point game anyway. So I, I just don't think, I don't think you're going to like have this huge advantage by trying to, to do things conservatively and, and, you know, do play like uh, the early season, like Maroon teams where they were just trying to, to win games in the teens. Like that was a necessity for those teams, how they were based on how they were built. But like, Right now, just just go out flying at this point, um, especially because it looks like so many of our best players are freshmen and sophomore. Like, I, you should be able to sell that to the fan base, especially considering how weird the season is anyway, and no one's going to the games and whatnot. Like, hopefully, there's at least some like built-in latent enthusiasm next year for like, hey, we weren't able to go to any football games last year. It's back. Let's support the team. And then, oh yeah, we had all these freshmen play last year, and they all look pretty good individually. They're all they've all been in the uh, in the system for a year now. Let's see what happens. So it's like I think the I, I don't know. I don't think the the one and seven record this year really um, does much to like diminish the uh, potential for next year any more than like if the, again like if they were three and three and five at this point or whatever. It just doesn't. I don't know. It just, I I'm just not super focused on the the win loss right now, given all of the injuries, all of the opt outs, everything else. I I'm just so much more invested in like the individual development of these players. And I feel like if you're Babers, it does maybe doesn't sound like a winning message and you're afraid of it for that reason, but like, it's the truth. Yeah, I completely agree. Like knowing, I feel like a lot of fans knew this was like a weird slash lost season, no matter what, um, unless we went like undefeated and <laughs> then we got into it and then everybody was like, well, what, what is this garbage? <laughs> and it's like, it's exact. It's, you know what? Like it's, it's the exact same garbage that you expected really. Like, I, I think when, once we saw the schedule get shifted, uh, once we saw 
injuries start to stack up and opt outs and everything else, like this is going to be a rough season. Do I think that Dino Babers is culpable for part of this issue? Yes. Do I think that there definitely needs to be a conversation around like what needs to change next year immediately, or like we might need to make a different decision at coach uh, coach position. Yes. However, what Dino can do to help himself a lot here, and maybe he has to some extent. Um, I know a lot of fans are just like too pissed off to care at this point is like, why, like, why haven't we just been putting as much youth out there as possible? We did it on the defense very early um, out of necessity. Um, and on offense, we didn't see it. At, at, we didn't see it as quickly. Um, and I think that's the frustrating part for folks. I think a lot of people would be a lot more okay with um, the last couple losses if Morgan had been under center and was showing some things and just getting valuable reps. Yeah, it's just like I, don't, I think obviously there are some fans who just don't get it at all and will never get it, and it, for them it doesn't really matter. Um, for the more uh, the fans who understand college football a little better and are more reasonable, like they'll understand a you know we're just this season is now about 2021. Um, Jacoby and Morgan may be the quarterback next year. Who knows? You know, Tommy, there's a, there's a long range of possibilities for the t- future of Tommy DeVito. And, you know, he may come back and he'll be the favorite to start if he comes back. Um, and at this point, I think that's probably the, probably the assumption anyway. But in any case, like, Jacoby and Morgan will – looks like he might play a, f- a role in the future of the quarterback position at Syracuse, whether it's 2021, 22, um, fighting for the starting job next year um, or whatever. So – I, I give people a little more benefit of the doubt and a little more credit to like, if you tell them like, this is what we're doing here. I think you can at least convince some of them. And also like the fans aren't going to get Babers fired this year. Babers is probably not getting fired this year because the school will not have the money to pay his, pay his buyout, even if they wanted to do it. And I don't think it would be, I wouldn't do it either way. But if you, if you're Babers, like you're kind of playing with house money anyway, because of the circumstances around the whole sport. Like, I don't think we're going to see any major uh, firings except for maybe Tom Herman this year. Um, yeah, so you might as well like use the house money that you got, even if like you didn't really earn it. <laughs> like, I don't know. It just seems like a really frustrating like inability to uh, to to take advantage of the situation. Um, I'm happy that we're doing it at all because like there's a scenario in which Morgan doesn't play this week if Culpepper's healthy. But it just it, it feels like it felt very obvious to me watching the game that like oh this should have been after the first like couple Culpepper starts like we should have been doing this already. So I guess I'm not gonna get too annoyed that we weren't. Um, I'm happy it's here now. I think it's pretty clear that like Morgan should be the guy, and hopefully we see some Markowitz if he's ready to go. I I open to seeing all all of the young players that we have, um, especially if it's not gonna put their uh, their redshirt status in jeopardy. But no, I think like you should be out here like selling selling playing time to recruits and selling look at all of these players who look really good uh to everyone else because uh you're gonna be here next year anyway. So and then next year becomes very consequential. But you'll do it with like a whole host of players who have meaningful playing time. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, the, the, we'll have plenty of time this offseason to talk next season because um, I, I do think it's a critical one and I do think it's one that like I think Dino understands that too. Uh, they realistically like 2021 is kind of, you know, put up or shut up time because no matter, no matter what the extenuating circumstances, you know, you can't have five losing seasons, six years and like stick around. It's just not going to work uh, for anybody. And, and, and not that I don't think he can pull off a winning season next year. I think he can, but there's definitely going to be an, an increased level of pressure to, to make sure it happens. Um, Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I just think like getting all of these guys playing time this year makes it more likely that you have a winning season next year. Totally. 
Uh, Dan, why don't we do a little halftime here before we uh, before we move on to some other uh, Syracuse-related uh, conversations? Cool. So what have you been drinking? Um, I didn't have too many different things, but I picked up uh, a pack of uh, Daughtrish Head Sequench, which I did not uh, intentionally buy a beer from Delaware, but then I just realized after I did it that I did it, and uh, so here we are. And then um, I also picked up uh, a pack of Cedar City, their uh, their session IPA, the High Low, which is I guess a session version of the High Lie. Um, it's really good. It's like probably not. I mean, it's 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 a little different than the High Lie, but it's super drinkable, um, easily crushable, but but really fully flavored. So uh, not a surprise they did a, did a, a really solid session IPA, but um, yeah, really enjoy that one. Nice. I mean, on election night, I was drinking some white wine, but uh, then from there, I moved on to uh, for the weekend. Had a Stone uh, Shokoveza. Uh, I mentioned this one previous years. I'm sure many people can find it wherever. Kind of a Mexican hot chocolate um, Imperial Stout. Uh, Stone had a, so the last of the Beachwood Amalgamator IPA that we had around here. Uh, had some more uh, Sierra Nevada uh, Wild Little Thing. Uh, they're uh, kind of lighter sour, and then. Um, Saladora's uh, Eunice was uh, one of their, they had four anniversary beers this year for their fourth anniversary. And they're all made with um, Masamudo Rose Diamond Nectarines. And they're all just different wild ales. Uh, I'm very excited about, about trying all of them, but the first one, uh, so far, so good. One of the better beers I've had this year. Nice. Yeah, I'm uh, happy to get some new stuff in the fridge, but uh, probably be working on these for a bit. Um, so I think I got six or 12 of, of each, so... We're, we're set for a while here and then to move on to something else. But um, yeah, I always enjoyed it in the, the dogfish. So Very nice. All right. Uh, one thing I wanted to kind of talk about tangentially related to the game um, this past Saturday, Dan, was uh, the BC comparison. You know, I, I know Brent Dax was talking about it. I talked about it with Brent on the radio last week. To me, I do think that Syracuse's backups testing BC to the extent they did Again, this maybe it's just a fluke occurrence, uh, but I do feel like it showed that like all the gushing about BC being able to quickly kind of recoup under a new coach and everything. I don't necessarily think they've taken much of a step forward. I think they've put a new coat of paint on a s- slightly improved offense and 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 have sold everyone in on on things just being infinitely better. When realistically, and and, and I mentioned this on my you know interview with Brent. In particular, on the recruiting front, like BC is basically like the equivalent of like one guy and Deuce Chestnut getting a sports star back from rivals away from having the same exact recruiting class as us. And so I, I don't necessarily see like Jeff Halfley leaps having BC leaps and bounds ahead of us, despite the, the the obvious disparity in wins and losses this year. Yeah, I, we talked about a little bit last week, like the just kind of the context for where the two uh, the two programs were heading. Uh, were similar. Like I'd almost compare where BC is now to like when Scott Schaefer took over from Marone. I I I think obviously it's not quite the same, but like Adazio just kind of grew stale. He didn't really like crash and burn. Um, he did like one year, and then he proceeded to go right back to the like six or seven wins. Right, and like I got why they were kind of done with that. Um, but it was like I think going from there is a bit easier. It's easier to at least win right away. Maybe you could argue like there's something to taking over a program that bottoms out because you don't have like the higher expectations to start and you can kind of build things to your image uh, quicker. Although it looks like Halfley's, you know, changed the team a fair amount. Um, their offense looks a lot different. It's not the same like total ground and pound that it was. Um, obviously he's remaking the defensive side of the ball uh, quite a bit, but um, 
Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I, I just think it's kind of an unfair comparison because at the same time, you could say Dino's in his fifth year, and that's that's more of a, a fair thing. But it isn't like BC was like mandated to uh, to just like bottom out just because they switched a coach after they they made a bowl last year, right? They were six wins. Yeah, yeah, they made a bowl. They made all a bowl all but one year under Adazio. The issue was right. for him was like, and I you know I mentioned this elsewhere, like year one. I, I think it was like 17 or 18 starters were coming and mostly seniors were coming back from like the previous regime. Adazio inherited that um, with uh, what's his face. Who was the running back that year? And then the giants draft him. Uh, Andre Williams. Yeah. So like Andre Williams was like a, like high speed candidate. So like you inherit that like a fifth year senior quarterback and uh, chase Reddick, like th- 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 there was absolutely like the, the recipe there to win seven or eight games. And, and and he did it, and then he proceeded to recruit pretty much at the same exact level, and they scheduled smart and won the games that they needed to win other than the games against Syracuse for some reason or another. And because of that, plus the fact they never bottomed out, the fact that they were in the ACC longer than we are, they end up on, on, on stabler footing. Like Pitt, you could say some of the same stuff. Like, no, they haven't been in the ACC as long as, you know, BC has, but... Um, they do have access to, uh, you know, Pennsylvania recruiting that we don't necessarily, uh, they do have the fact that they haven't really bottomed out. They had a couple of rough seasons here and there. Um, they do recruit at a better rate than we do, uh, because of the, the local, um, factor and the fact that they're a public school, um, or at least a public private mix. It's a weird thing with Pitt, but, but in any case, like you can see with those two programs that everyone frequently compares us to and, and and we should to some extent we don't have like a ton of measuring sticks around the country like it's fair but in other ways like there's still reasons why and it's not to excuse the fact that we did bottom out it's just to point out that bottoming out and bottoming out potentially twice um in the, in the last you know decade and a half is enough to put you pretty far behind the eight ball yeah and i get why like it's tougher it's a tougher pill to swallow for like our fans too so i kind of get it like it's hard to say well, we did this twice, so uh, you have to be patient, or le- at least like not, you know, underst- not understand why, or you have to understand why another team might be able to step in with a new coach right away and like be okay. But it just kind of is the situation. But at the same time, it also doesn't mean that you know. I think Halfley looks like he's doing a nice job there, but in year one, like it looked like Schaefer was just going to keep uh, rolling on from where Marone was. Obviously, Halfley's not from inside the same staff, but. If anything, like we've seen so many coaches inherit another coach's kind of work and win right away and then really struggle when it comes to his own thing. Um, think uh, Kyle Flutter Rutgers, his best years were, I believe, right after Shiano left. It's kind of a similar idea. So, um, yeah, just because like just because a couple teams are right in the same hunt um, or, or seem to have not really lost anything after a coaching change doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, we're right in the same thing. Like if, if, if Babers had left after 2018, like had, had someone hired him away, you'd probably have us in the same spot. Like, and maybe like the coach would have actually had a better, you know, following season just based on one thing or another. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they would have been, uh, you know, it would have been a, a great thing long-term. Um it just kind of makes the the year one situation a lot different than a coach who's stepping in after a Robinson or a Schaefer or whoever else you want to name from another school um, because like you just end up starting in a very different spot. Um, 
especially like some of the bottomed out teams, like after Robinson, like the, some of the things Barone said, you know, you were, you were coming from such a low place um, and a place that like just seemed completely wrong with how a college football team should be run that uh, the fact that we got to a bowl in year two under him is kind of like miraculous. Um, so yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know. College football programs are so different and coaching staffs are so different, like especially compared to like the NFL where everything, you know, everyone runs t- kind of similar stuff for the most part. And like, you kind of know what to look for. Um, there are just huge disparities in, in the situations between different college football programs. And it's really hard, even between a, a Syracuse and a BC are pretty similar, but it's, they're still different enough where you, it, it's hard to, to just make blanket statements about any of them. Yeah. And I mean, wasn't there, I mean, I, I know it's like not completely true, but isn't there like, I think I did this a couple of years ago where like looking at like Syracuse, Pitt, BC and like Rutgers and like how often more than two of them were good at the same time. And it was like pretty rare. Us and Pitt are never good at the same time. I know that just offhand, yeah. like our, our hate, our, our best years in the nineties, Pitt was dreadful. And then BC wasn't that great either. Really? Yeah. It's, I mean, there's just not a lot of, there's not a lot of like, there's not a lot of land for, or, or, I mean, just the recruiting, especially it's so competitive between those schools. And then a lot of that was before you had the Northeast being uh, as picked over by the bigger schools. Like obviously Notre Dame would get theirs and Penn state, but now you see Alabama coming up for New Jersey kids. You see um, Clemson does it. Clemson like, does it. Like, like I said, what was that? Did you see that stat on Saturday that of the top 10 kids in Pennsylvania for 2021 that, Pitt had two of them. The rest were committed elsewhere. One was undecided and Penn State had none of them. I missed that, but that's surprise. It's surprising because Penn State usually does so well in Pennsylvania, but they also now compete elsewhere. They're, they're super dominant in like the, the DMV. And it almost, you almost wonder if like they've given up some of their own backyard, but just in general, recruiting is so national now. Um, you look at Alabama and Clemson getting their best quarterbacks from Hawaii and California. Like, it's it it's hard to uh it's always been hard to lock up your backyard especially when there aren't that many players to go around in the northeast um and now when guys are both able to get themselves out there more so if you are like a player from a kind of uh under recruited area you can if you're like really good you can still get your tape out there and and maybe someone big finds you but then to have like them coming in the backyard and and uh just not as not being not as focused at like just locking up their own backyards. It's, it's made for a very difficult situation for those schools. So it's not surprising that like, I, I would wonder, I'd, I'd be interested to see the full list, but like uh, in terms of the records, but it's not surprising that it's hard for two or three of those schools to be good at the same time in general. Um, and it might just get harder because uh, football is not exactly like blowing up in this area anyway. Um, so it's not like a, I don't think we're getting more players in the Northeast, unfortunately. So it's going to become more of an issue. Um, and obviously you could never just rely on that anyway as Syracuse. Like we kind of know what our recruiting footprint looks like. You have to go into Pennsylvania. You have to go down to Florida. Um, obviously North Carolina, but a little bit more with the ACC, the Virginia area out to Michigan. Um, like we, we kind of have a general idea, but it, it's just much more of a challenge than being able to at least rely on like your home state or your home area to be like half of your recruiting class or whatever. Yeah, I agree. So I guess kind of closing this out here, Dan, like what are the, what are like the three things that you want to see out of Syracuse wrapping up this season? Um, just continue with the youth movement. I, I would love to just see Morgan start the rest of the games. Um, I think uh, these, at least these next two games um, will be tough to win, but 
Um, Louisville's defense isn't very good. Uh, NC State's pretty pretty decent. Like they're better than I think we expected this year. But they're like you can put up some points on them, and and I just want to see us go out there and compete with those two teams. And and Notre Dame, you know, it is what it is. Uh, obviously, Notre Dame looks really good. They just beat Clemson on Saturday um, in pretty convincing fashion. Obviously, Trevor Lawrence is out, but DJ uh, uh, um is still really good. So that's that's a, a pretty great win for them anyway. Um, but yeah, just just look competitive. I want to see. I, I just don't see need uh, feel the need to see any um, movement back towards like playing a bunch of seniors that aren't going to. Uh, move the team forward. So go out there and live and die with the, the young players and, and just play your game. Like we talked about earlier, I just want to see the Syracuse offense look like what we uh, were sold the Syracuse as the Syracuse offense looked like uh, versus the, like the, you know, running 50 plays maybe and, and hoping for the best, like just go out there. And if you lose because you try to go too fast or, or whatever, like I just rather see that. Yeah. I, I think those are all good calls. I think for me, um, Morgan is obviously number one, two, um, the second, I, I think would be just mixing it up in the passing game, like whether that's more running back screens, as we've seen with some effectiveness in the last couple of weeks uh, with both Cooper Lutz and uh, and Sean Tucker, uh, whether that's using the tight ends more. I mean, tight ends have caught a touchdown pass uh, from Jacoby and Morgan East the last two weeks, uh, and and yet we don't really see them a ton in the uh, in, in the actual like route running uh, for reasons unknown. I, I think realistically, like. You're seeing Morgan use more receivers. I mean, he, he threw a bunch to, to Quealy, threw to Lutz, he threw to Tucker. Um, I think who else caught a pass in this game? I didn't have it up in front of Thompson, me. Uh, Nikeem had a pass. Hackett had the touchdown. Benson caught one. Yeah, I mean, that's a good, like, it's a good number of, of players. I think, like, it's questionable, like, why, like, Ed Hendricks is nowhere to be found. We saw Damian Alford. Um, late in the game against Wake and then didn't see him. And this one, like Alford's a 6'5 guy. He's somebody um, who like seemed pretty um, encouraging. And Javante Williams, same deal, like 6'4", 6'5 guy that we probably want to see a little bit more. I, I think realistically, like, you know, if Syracuse is not going to win any of these games, and, and I, I hope they win a, at least a game going forward, but chances are they won't. Um, let's just play some younger guys. Let's see what we have on this roster. Like this is a golden opportunity here. And I, I, I think I mentioned it before that at Baber's personnel management around red shirts uh, has never, and, and, and just youth development uh, and like getting you getting experience at the right times has never been a forte of this staff. Um, and I, I think you're seeing some of that this year. And again, like some of the hands have been forced, but there's plenty that haven't. Uh, the other place that like we haven't really talked about is, I'd like to see some more youth on defensive line. Uh, I, I think that the guys that we have in there, um, even like McKinley Williams, who's playing well, but realistically, like these guys are not meant for a three-three-five where they're kind of plugging holes and, and and stopping the run, so that everybody else in the defense can make plays. Uh, these are guys made for you know an aggressive attacking four-three, so we don't really have the size up there to plug holes. And uh, you know. But Elliot said for years when he was at SB Nation, when he's a 24-7 as well, like it's really hard to get, um, you know, defensive linemen that are ready to go in year one. Uh, and, and for Syracuse, that goes double just based on just how our recruiting struggles there. And you, at the same time, you're seeing the last couple of classes, Dino goes all in on, on, on defensive line. This past cycle alone, we're looking at like five or six for 2021. I, I think that now could be a good time to, like no offense to the guys that are in there, now could be a good time, though, to start seeing what some of the younger players can do, start getting them some reps. 
and I'd like to see, um, you know, maybe some different looks up front. Um, just to, just again, because all these guys are, I mean, could potentially graduate like Kingsley Jonathan, um, Cody Roscoe, Josh Black and Kenley Williams, uh, all could potentially, you know, say this is it. And now you have a complete reset once again on the defensive line a year after you just reset. Yeah, defensive line is definitely a tricky spot, especially defensive tackle. Like having quality interior defensive line play is very difficult, especially, uh, and it's going to be more of a, an important factor as we go forward with the three three five. So that's a good point, and uh, one that will probably be the probably the trickiest part to fill in that defense. Like we've had some decent, some good in, interior linemen, but. Um, unless you've got guys that can really anchor the middle, uh, it's always going to be a kind of a concern. And just to pivot off that, like I just looked it up, um, NC State, uh, LR was 183 rushing yards a game. Uh, Louisville actually averages 200, uh, allows 200 rushing yards a game. Um, let's let Sean Tucker cook in these two games. Get him healthy, obviously. But uh, if Sean Tucker's going to have like a monster game this year, like Louisville might be it. They They do not stop the run. So hopefully we have that to look forward to. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we saw Mo Neal have a real breakout like last few games of the last season. I wouldn't mind seeing Tucker. I mean, he's not going to challenge for a thousand yards in all likelihood, but he could challenge for for seven or eight hundred if if he has some good games. Like, why, why not give him a crack at it and, and and let him firmly establish himself? Like, I'm not. I mean, I don't know about you. I'm not banking on seeing Abdul Adams or Jarvin Howard next year. And realistically, like, I mean, Joar Jordan, I think, is going to be back in the mix, but. Like why not? Why not let Tucker get the the, the line share carries and and start creating the blueprint for what this offense can be next year, uh, with with some pace, with with, with a more run centric attack, um, and obviously yeah, with, with, with a with a quarterback who has a little more pocket presence like Morgan. Yeah, I agree. Let's hopefully it's just like I just want like a good, uh, just a good showing overall. Um, and luckily we have two weeks to, to prepare for it, so hopefully, uh, hopefully we come out there and and really put a shock in Louisville uh, or at least like give them a run. So um, they've been kind of, I mean, they've been disappointing this year, so it wouldn't totally shock me if we uh, snuck up on them. I mean, they are two and five, which I didn't even realize until I just looked like that was. Defense has been, defense has been rough. The offense though still has a ton of skill players. I just don't know how Satterfield's bottomed out like this with like another year to bring in. I mean, maybe, maybe that's what it is. I mean, maybe it's just the fact that Satterfield never really had to recruit very heavily at app state therefore like there's a little bit of a learning curve with getting the quality uh and caliber of athlete that the louisville needs to like kind of take the next step but i don't think that means you step back to two and five um unless you just kind of mail it on the defense which i think they've done now for the last two years it's a weird two and five too because like they beat wku they blew up florida state which doesn't say a lot this year um they played miami like tough-ish but not super tough they they lost by three to pit they lost that weird 12-7 game to Notre Dame. Uh, they lost by a touchdown to Vatech. The Georgia Tech game is weird. They lost by, what, 19 points to Georgia Tech, which is strange. But, like, it's some close games. It's taking a really good Notre Dame team to a, a five-point, you know, loss. So, like, they could easily be better. And the offense, like, the numbers look good. Um, I think it's the defense is just rough. Like, they've surrendered 40 points multiple times. Not to, like, step on NetSuite's preview, but, like, um, they've stepped up. They've, Surrendered 40 points multiple times against like pretty questionable offenses like Georgia Tech. And they almost like they just can't quite get in the end zone, even if they put up like decent yardage numbers. But I think last year they, they like, way overachieved for what they were. And this year it's been like a real overcorrection. Um, not to like say that we, uh, not to say that, I mean, they'll probably be pretty good favorites in the I think people still think that they're like pretty talented. And, and I'm like Hawkins having a nice year. 
Uh, Cunningham's having a solid year, but it's uh, it's not looking great. Also, I just opened up the Louisville page, and it just gave me it's giving me uh, Iowa State stats. So uh, good job, ESPN. <laughs> That's really delightful. And uh, yeah, honestly, yeah, not not step on next week preview. I think the one one thing that gives me some hope there, perhaps, is that if Louisville is as bad situationally on offense in the red zone as we are good on defense situationally in the red zone, that could be a nice combination for us. I would take that. Yeah, that, that'll probably be what I highlight at least in our uh, in our five things preview next week. But even, that even one, in our bad years, we tend to have like these like weird, kind of feel good like, wins late on late. So hopefully, we get that one somewhere here. Yeah, it's a feel good win, and or like we just have like this one thing we're like really good at that like nobody talks about, and and somehow this year it's it's actually red zone um, defense. Yes. But yeah, we'll we'll have more on that next week. Uh, it's a Friday nighter, so uh, everyone gets to ruin their Friday night potentially. <laughs> Instead of just their Saturday morning. You, none of us have anything to do on Friday nights, so we can't. There's no excuses here. Fair. If you have something to do on Friday night, you're being irresponsible. Like, let's just call it, call it out. My wife's just going to be annoyed. I, 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 <laughs> I, I'll just say that. Uh, in any case, uh, Dan, uh, anything else before we go? No, I think that's it. Uh, good week, everyone. Uh, hopefully, uh, everyone keeps their celebrating to a, you know, a responsible level um about all things mostly the Mets as we talked about like we all know that was the most important thing to happen in the country this week I think it's it's appropriate to be happy about that for another week yeah if you saw any celebrations in the in the streets um you know especially here in New York yeah especially in New York Mets fans everywhere Everywhere. (laughs) the the, the, the secret Mets fans that 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 that, that show themselves when they're good um those those are them they were there everywhere Uh, that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Troy Noon's Absolute Podcast. You rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, Megaphone, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, and go orange. Go orange.